Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. My guest today is Mary Lou Aleski, who is the director of the Hop Center for Performing Arts at Dartmouth College. And uh, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, as we always do. But one of the most interesting things that, uh, um, that our conversation made me think about is, well, how, how do you actually get to the place you want to be in your life and in your, in your career? Um, maybe a lot of people want to just say, uh, and I don't know, maybe this is a millennial thing. I wanted it, so I'm going to do it, and I'm going to be there. Um, and this idea of paying your dues, um, this actually comes up a lot when I work with executive groups, and they, um, uh, they, start, uh, they start complaining about all these millennials, which is a funny thing for me to say because I'm seeing across my producer, uh, Ben the Millennial, but I'm going to keep going and not look at him and see if I can get away with it. Um, uh, yeah, so how do, you, I mean, how do you get to where you want you, where you want to be and sometimes I know you don't always know exactly where you want to be and you're allowed to change your mind you're allowed to learn and grow and go in a different direction that's okay but if you kind of know where you want where, where you want to be you kind of know what you want to do and you can't just do it all of a sudden uh, because well you know nobody's going to make you director of, uh, of one of the most uh, prestigious uh, performing arts centers in uh, northeastern United States um, no, no one's going to just give you that job. And so Mary Lou Aleski uh, went through her, her journey to, uh, to get there. M- maybe like a lot of people, she wanted to be an artist uh, herself, a performer, a, a musician herself. But uh, as, she, uh, uh, as she says, um, well, at some point you kind of realize you're not, you're not good enough and you got to do something else. But what I found so interesting about Mary Lou is the, the path she went on is pretty... Um, um, pretty conventional for someone in the world of arts, at least to start. She actually became a, an accountant. And uh, before you kind of kind of shake your head at that, I find it really remarkable because some of you no doubt listened to my uh, podcast episode with uh, Patricia Hannaway, who is the, uh, the, the graphic digital graphic designer and artist who uh, worked on Toy Story and Mulan and uh, worked with Peter Jackson on Lord of the Rings. And she started on Wall Street before she became a uh, really an artist and, uh, and, and got involved in the entertainment uh, industry. So the pathways, you know, there, there's a lot of pathways and maybe, maybe it's safer to do that, uh, to do something more conventional. But the truth of the matter is you learn, you learn a lot. And uh, uh, in the case of Mary Lou, she learned, uh, and, and you know, she got a lot out of, out of being an accountant, but she also learned that at a certain point in her career, that wasn't really what the next stage needs to be, and she needed to redefine herself, and she found opportunities to do that. Um, and sometimes, you know, when, when any one of us are thinking about what do we want to do next and how do we get there, volunteering is a good idea. Um, doing, um, when you're younger, doing internships, I always say, you know, a lot of young younger people come to me or ask me about you know career advice, and they're not sure. Sometimes the opposite of what you know Mary Lou knew, which is uh, they're not sure what they want to do. Uh, and I say, well, if you don't know what you want to do, one of the best ways to figure it out is to do a lot of different things. And that means experimenting. That means taking an internship. That means volunteering for different types of work. And uh, and each one of those experiences adds to your kind of repertoire of know-how, but also your emotional repertoire or emotional categorization of what you like and what you don't like, and you get closer and closer to where, where you want to be. So you can see, you know, our, uh, my conversation with Mary Lou Aleski uh, was, was uh, wide-ranging and I think has lots of interesting lessons for, uh, for listeners, for people at, at, at different stages of their career. And uh, oh yeah, one one more thing that uh, we touch on that uh, is also one of my favorite topics is uh, analytics or, or, or uh, um, data versus intuition and creativity. And if you're going to be in the arts, you know creativity's got to be a big a big part of it. But if you're running an organization in the arts, uh, you also have to be alert to uh, to patterns and, and and patterns translate into modern language means algorithms and analytics. And uh, it's interesting to think about where do ideas come from and how do you execute on those ideas and what's the relative importance of your, you know, uh, going with a hunch, letting creativity take, uh, take, take prominence uh, and, and, and allowing your intuition to come out versus, uh, versus really being analytical and precise 
and uh, and quote unquote rational. It's something all of us do all the time, and uh, and the right balance is interesting. And in the world of arts, it's particularly in, particularly interesting. So um, yeah, lots of uh, lots of fun things, uh, interesting topics that uh, uh, that that we talk about. And I think um, I think everyone listening is going to get uh, is going to trigger all kinds of interesting uh, uh, notions, ideas, and maybe things to do uh, maybe a little bit differently moving forward. So let's welcome Mary Lou Aleski to the studio. Welcome to the SIDcast, and my name is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Mary Lou Aleski. Hey, Mary Lou. Hey, Sid. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Just great. Thank Just you great. for being with us. Glad to be here. Um, yeah, the world of arts. Mm. Uh, what, what got you into this? In the, when you were a little girl, were you like always with a sketch pad or movies, or what, what was it? <laughs> no, I lived, um, I lived in a, a very uh, eclectic home. Um, that was full of chaos and uh, storytelling and different cultures. Mm. And um, rather than thinking about sitting around drawing or making music, I was always just absorbing what was happening around me. My, I lived with my grandparents. Um, my grandparents were immigrants from Italy uh, on my mother's side and from Poland, uh, Russia on my father's side. And they... Uh, they each thought that they ruled the world, <laughs> and that resulted in a lot of sharing of polkas and tarantellas and uh, church going and arguments and debates that just made me feel like the world was a really interesting place. Wow. And did you have one of those homes people were always coming and going, yeah. visiting, and an extended family or yeah. more friends? Cousins, aunts. Cousins. Um, they, they were all part of it. All part of it. Wow. Yeah. And living the way many immigrant communities live uh, today, very much uh, around our own people, um, mm-hmm. with occasional visitors from the outside, <laughs> and um, you know, as my parents got older, uh, they were then tuning into American Bandstand and then the Beatles. Wow, the so, Beatles too. Uh, the Beatles too. Yeah. So we had everything from, as I said, from from polkas to chubby check checker happening yeah, in our right. living room. Um, yeah. So it made me very fond of music, especially because that was a core uh, of what the way we communicated. You know, the um, the picture you're, uh, you're, you're drawing for life at, at home and uh, with all this energy and music and people and coming and going, probably loud conversations and all kinds of things. There are lots of people that grow up that way uh, today, but there's lots and lots of people that have become uh, quote uh, professional uh, and sophisticated, and you know they they've advanced their careers, and I guess yeah. you know the two of us might qualify in that category. Yeah. And uh, you're no longer in the same way. Maybe maybe you've you've you've, you've kept that connection. I don't know, but. M- most of the time, you're no longer part of that, right. and and you know your own families. They don't grow up in that kind of milieu of, of chaos and energy and 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 happiness, and it's uh, it's it's different. And I feel like you know I think about that sometimes. That I feel like that's been lost somewhere along the way. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think there's so much to be. Uh, learned by being close to a group of people that make you feel confident no matter what is happening around you. Mm. And there's usually, I think, uh, one central, one focal point. And in my life, it was my grandfather, who was a great opera lover. So Mm. all of this traditional music and folklore happening around him, but he... um, you know, for him, Verdi was like Mick Jagger is to us, right? Like he was born in the late 1900s or so, or 1800s. So he, you know, he related to him in a popular way. Mm-hmm. And um, the Met broadcasts on Sunday, Saturday afternoons were a staple, and that was one of the steady beats. And I think that was one of the roads that helped me grow into someone who wanted a life in the arts because I knew that there was this consistent world mm-hmm. outside of what was happening in my family that was grand and beautiful and could be imagined because, of course, we only, only watched um, watched with parentheses on mm-hmm. the radio. That's what my grandfather said because you you had to imagine it for yourself. Is that, did he say that? Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a very wise man. Yeah, he was. He was a very wise. That man. is a hundred percent the opposite of today, yeah. where we are constantly watching with our eyes and our fingers on every device. Exactly, and I think it limits curiosity. I mean, for for me, I have to say the thing that, and maybe it's because of the way I grew up, but the thing I fear more. Than anything for most people, especially young people, is just isolation. 
right? Everybody mm-hmm. curating their own life, curating their own experience, their own world. Mm-hmm. We can do so much with just what's in our pocket. So and there's not a lot of reason to reach out. There's an entire network of organizations, of companies that help us do that because they tell us what we like. Exactly. They reinforce all these things that we like and we know and, and we keep going down that path. It's one of the reasons why I, I think so many, uh, so much of this country, maybe a lot of other countries, people have become so separate, so different because it's easier and easier to go down deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. And actually, you think about any... Uh, any hobby you have, even if it's some really narrow esoteric thing, you could find a community online yeah. of other people that are similar, similarly passionate, yeah. which is a great thing, except, I mean, it's a great thing. But the side effect is it takes you down a path where you become different from others. Absolutely. And in fact, your relationship is mostly through an algorithm. You know, it's it's how you're found and how your desires yeah. are found and how your groups are found, where the randomness of what life encounter um, you might have on any given day is is narrowed and eliminated. And I think that therein lies why the arts are so important, especially today, because we were living in a time of great migration, probably the largest migration in human history. Lots of people with lots of different cultures and backgrounds moving all over the globe, yet um, our curiosity about them is limited. And one of the great ways to know each other better is through our artistic expressions and our cultures. And again, more or less, it goes back to the way I was raised. Um, mm. But I do think it's more important than ever today. You're talking about curiosity. Uh, what? How do parents help? I'm talking now back as, as a kid. So you were in this milieu, and it sounds like you know, a wise grandfather about watching the radio. Yeah. Uh, so your imagination runs wild. And, and reading books, of course, is... That's your brain is always working, and you're picturing, you're reading about what happened, and you're picturing that that place. Yeah. Whether it's accurate or not doesn't matter. It's your your experience about that. But how, how do we? How can we help kids con- continue? I mean, they have it. They're born with innate curiosity, and it gets driven out by life and by I don't know getting serious. But we we don't want to lose that. Yeah, I do think that we put a lot of pressure on our students to perform. Um, and I think that um, measuring that performance, whether it's in grades or uh, employment or wealth, is a really challenging thing to weigh children and, and young people down with. Um, I do think that one of the things we do really well at Dartmouth is that we allow for ways in which our our curriculum to also intersect with co-curricular activity and experiential learning. And that, I think, is a very important balance, especially when when there's so much pressure to get the grades, to get the job, to get the wealth. Um, yeah. We need more time to co-create, to imagine together, to tell each other each other's stories, maybe not just even verbally, but maybe through other forms, but be uh, just be together. Do, so do you think that uh, if we're measuring success uh, or performance, it takes away from our curiosity, our creativity? I do. I, I do. I'm not saying that you can't do that and you shouldn't do it, but I do think that you can overdo it. You could overdo it. And yeah. Because, um, you know, when you want somebody to learn something, you need them to try it, then they need to get feedback on it. And the typical way you find, you get feedback is through some type of testing uh, or performance. Yeah. Um, and so it's an essential part of learning. Uh, so, you know, you're making me think about it ironically. Is it, the, is it that retaining or maintaining and even enhancing creativity and learning something they, they actually don't go hand in hand sometimes? Not always. I mean, you know, I think we've all been in that place where we do what we need to do in order to get the outcome that's expected of us, Mm -hmm. whether that's a grade or a job or a relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we we make compromises and we do what we need to. Um, Getting a grade doesn't always result in learning. It may result in achievement, but it may not necessarily result in a true connection with um, an emotional connection with material that allows you to transform it creatively. Yeah. You know, this is because, especially for, you know, high potential uh, kids, whether they're young kids or college kids, Mm -hmm. um, when you um, uh, when you perform, it's seen as an as a uh, 
when you do a test, it's seen as a means to an end as opposed to an end in itself. Exactly. Exactly. One of the things that's so exciting about um, uh, about being here at Dartmouth is, is in the arts especially, is that we have um, very high-level performance ensembles that our students are part of. We have the Dartmouth Symphony Orchestra. We have the Handel Society, the old, oldest town down, down choral. Uh, master chorale in the world, in the country. Um, we've got all these wonderful ensembles. None of them are credit bearing. So we have almost 300 students who come and participate in these ensembles and perform at a very high level. They're smart. Mm -hmm. They're curious. They can do just about anything. But there, they're able to do something that no one is measuring them on. Mm -hmm. And um, I hear from students all the time what an important outlet that is. Yeah. So why why do we give students grades? Well, there are plenty of institutions that don't. I don't know why Dartmouth kids. <laughs> and, and the vast, vast majority. I mean, I'm thinking about it, and and what you're saying makes a, makes a lot of sense. Um, does it really matter, especially when you get to you know? top universities where there's a lot of grade inflation and it's very unusual for someone not to get anything but either excellent or a very good grade. Um, and, you know, when you, uh, when you apply to medical school or law school or business school, where there's a test that yeah. you're going to take at that point, and that's a pretty good differentiator. I mean, it's, there's right. flaws of those tests, but that's a, that's a data point. Uh, but you're making me think that why... You know, there's two things. Why, why should we have people, why should we grade them? I know what you were talking about, young kids. So you got to, you know, you got to put something there. Maybe, maybe sure. that's the answer. Uh, um, but, you know, the other, the other thing that, come, that comes to mind is a bit further afield even is um, uh, why do we, f quote, unquote, force people to attend work or school? Why can't they decide? And there are rewards and consequences and punishments that are associated with your results. So, for example, in Silicon Valley, Netflix has done this, mm -hmm. many other companies. Have done. They don't really care how much vacation you have. Take as much as you want. If you don't produce, you don't have a job. Exactly. Um, so exactly. it's taking this, I don't know if it's exactly a straight line of kind of logical progression, but it's quite analogous, right? This idea of having grades or not having grades and going to work or not going to work. It's about performing. It, Absolutely. It's, it's about producing what you need to produce. You know, and there are some signs that things are shifting. I mean, if, um, you know, 10 years ago, if you didn't score high on the SATs, you weren't mm -hmm. going to get into the schools that you wanted to get yeah, into. Yeah, yeah. Um, increasingly, SAT scores are optional in ACTs in many schools. And schools are more interested in who you are as a person and how you mm -hmm. demonstrate what you've done, whether you're volunteering in your community, whether you've shown leadership in your school. Um, so even some of the, I mean, maybe not Dartmouth, maybe not um, our Ivy League partners, but many schools are now offering students an alternative way mm -hmm. to represent who they are. And I think that as we move into a world where our creativity and our ability to communicate and work together in a collaborative way to make things happen starts to be even more important where, you know, artificial intelligence can do all of the really rote things, including passing tests. Um, mm -hmm. Our ability to strengthen our creativity, our communication, our ability to be part of a civil society, mm -hmm. that's all very, very important. Yeah. And hard to measure with a grade. Yes. <laughs> hard, hard to measure. This is a common problem in companies as well, right? Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we reward the things we can, we can measure, but sometimes some of those things that are really tough to measure um, we don't we don't worry about them, but they're 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 actually bigger differentiators. Absolutely. Yeah. When you think about the kind of teamwork that's happening around the globe, even mm -hmm. through um, social media platforms to create things, um, scientists that are working on the same pr problems around the globe, mm -hmm. people who are coming together and sharing ideas and moving projects together forward across the globe, that takes creativity. Um, that takes ways of knowing how to work collaboratively. That takes ways of knowing how to be part of a, an interconnected, interdependent society. And those are not things that we test on uh, with grades, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you're on to a really fascinating topic that I've thought a lot about. It relates to artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. the um, um, 
um, the, the group that runs Davos uh, has written extensively about this as well and has the various reports. I mean, what kind of skills are needed? What kind of capabilities are needed for the modern era we're in for the next 10 or 20 years? When uh, I have a friend that can answer any question faster than you and I, his name's Google, um, mm. and he's pretty good, uh, yeah. and he's only getting better. And so why even in school should we learn facts now, this is a two-edged sword here because I could answer my own question by saying, well, you got to have some basics, basic, basis of knowledge. You can't keep asking your friend for everything. But we, we spend a lot of time on that. But the things that are, and this is true in work, when you get to artificial intelligence, the things that are very, so far, machines can't do, um, and maybe never, who knows? I, you can never say never. Yeah. But you mentioned creativity, uh, working uh, effectively together, team mm-hmm. teamwork, right? Um and becoming a productive citizen mm-hmm. of a civil society. Mm-hmm. Those things are, uh, those things are, are, there's no one who could do that. No. And um, creativity also gives you the strength to know how to apply your friend Google in your pocket or any other technological tool in a way that advances human needs. Say it, some more about that. Well, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an arts example. Okay. So we recently did a project with the Stratford Festival that included a very highly technologically informed production of Coriolanus. And um, it was a kind of... uh, it wasn't VR, but I would say it was, it's artificial reality uh, with mixed reality. Hmm. So highly technical, meant to feel uh, cinematic, but with live actors. So... Um, all of a sudden, you have the ability to make a room emerge, a soundscape emerge, with very little thought. But if you don't have a director who understands how to apply that technology to tell a story well, Mm -hmm. then just having the technology becomes overwhelming, and then Mm -hmm. it's just about the technology, and it's not about the story. So this particular production of Coriolanus was really all about politics in in the context of media. And uh, he very much wanted to create the cinematic atmosphere, even though it was live on stage, Mm -hmm. so that the story of how media manipulates politics, and even in in the day of Shakespeare, ways in which politics were being uh, manipulated, Mm -hmm. um, could be demonstrated on stage, but not at the service, not the story at the service of technology, but technology at the sor- at the service of telling the story yes. yeah. to create an atmosphere. So he, as the director, Robert Lepage, knew how to use this technology in a way that changed people's ideas about what Shakespeare's play was about. Mm. Wow. So um, I think technology is great, but if you're not creative enough to know how to use it to your benefit, to tell human stories, to bring people together, to solve um, the great human problems of the world, mm-hmm. then you're probably, it's not worth having the technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great example. You said several things. One, one is that um, it's all about the story. Yeah. And this, uh, uh, you don't have to be you know, an expert in arts to know that. You just have to be a living, breathing human being to know yeah. that uh, people learn from storytelling um, it's powerful. It connects to us. There's got to be an evolutionary uh, r- reason for that as well. Uh, and that, that is always paramount. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, 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 and second, this idea of technology. Technology can never replace that. It could help you tell that story better. That's what you're saying, right? Exactly. You know, think about, I'm thinking about a, almost a reverse, not a reverse a- example in the in terms of being opposite to the, the conclusion you've got, the, the same conclusion, but done in a different way. One of the people I study for some of my research is George Lucas. Mm-hmm. And he had a story he wanted to tell, very, very famous story about a father and a son that's been, that had been told and continues to be told, I don't know, thousands of times probably. And, uh, um, but he wanted to tell it differently. And he had in his mind all these characters and, and almost like a a digital mainframe in his brain kind of thinking this through. And he ended up starting a bunch of companies, technology companies, to produce the, um, the, technolo- the digital um, characters and, and the voices and everything else to tell star- the story of Star Wars. But the, but the heart of Star Wars, the reason why it works, it's a, it's a, it's a classic story of a father and son. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We're talking to Mary Lou Aleski. Let's take a short break and come right back. 
We're back with Mary Lou Aleski. Um, Mary Lou, so you've been in the arts for forever, and you describe for us some of those early childhood um, experiences that really helped make make who you are. Uh, but how do you actually uh, how do you actually get started that way? So you graduated from college, and mm-hmm. what did you do right after that? I became an accountant. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> who else told me something crazy like this? Um, Patricia Hannaway. Oh, really? Do you know Patricia? Yeah. She is a, uh, a professor in computer science, and uh, um, and she was on Wall Street for a couple of years before uh, Andy Warhol discovered her. Oh, I'd wow. Be completely crazy, right? That's hysterical. No, I, I mean, I, I had a similar kind of weird thing. How long did you pay your dues there? Uh, I was actually, I worked for Deloitte. I, um, I was an audit manager. I worked there for about eight years. I find that um, hard to believe. I know, I know. So so the story is that I did play uh, piano and organ, actually, yeah. um, as a young person. And um, like many people who try to perform, mm decided in the 11th hour that I was never going to be able to make a living at this, that I wasn't all that good. Mm. And, you know, I came up, I came up, as I said, from a very uh, uh, crazy Can kind of... Can I interrupt of, for a second? Yeah. How did you know you weren't going to be that good? Because you say like many people. I think that's exactly right. I think there's there's a realization. Sometimes that realization could take 10 more years yeah. of, your, of your life. You didn't have that. Uh, because you have that dream and it's exciting and there's all these good re- – how did you know this thing? How would- well, I think prob- there are probably a lot of people who make that decision who shouldn't make the decision, right? Because in your heart, mm. you, you know, to put yourself on stage, to put yourself out in front of people yeah. is a very scary thing. Yeah. And um, sometimes you just don't have the courage. And so part of it was not having the courage. Uh, I came up from a blue-collar family. Uh, we all – paid our bills regularly, and you just don't have the courage. Mm. I also, most of my performing was, um, I played the organ at funerals. So there aren't a lot of audience expectations there. Yeah, you, you know? get a little less word of mouth out of that. <laughs> exactly, <too>. exactly. <laughs> so it seemed that I would should do something practical, like go to business school, mm. which I did. And um, I was fortunate that when I was at Deloitte, uh, I got all of the clients that no one else knew how to talk to. And that included the American Symphony Orchestra and Perry Ellis before he died. And uh, Why and, is that? How, how do you speak that language? Well, them? I think it was pretty clear that I was more of a creative than most of the others in uh, in the firm. I mean, in those days, you just had to wear a pink suit and not a blue suit, and you'd represented yourself <laughs> as a little more creative. Oh, yeah. um, in, in those days, you know, all the women were, wore bow ties in their little uh, button-down shirt. Yeah. So anyway, but I was, I was fortunate enough to have enough business clients that were arts and entertainment entertainment oriented and um, that was the ver- that was the beginning and from there I um, I transferred to the Houston office and was really surprised to learn that oil and gas wasn't anything like um, the entertainment clients that I had in New York and uh, so very quickly I, I left the firm and I started in the arts and I became the general manager of the Alley Theater that was my first job in the arts I became a producer the Alley Theater in New York and no the Alley Theater in Houston Texas in and, Houston. yeah it's a Tony award-winning theater but um, but one thing that I learned immediately was that the practicality of being in finance and understanding how things come together financially mm-hmm. and um, how to raise money was very, very helpful. This is so interesting. So you went down this path, mm-hmm. uh, uh, not just in business, but as an accountant, mm-hmm. which actually I once did as well. <laughs> the truth is now true, officially out. True story. Although I only lasted two two years. Um, and I may, I may have said this, I can't remember, on a, on a different episode, maybe not. But um, uh, what happened is, uh, you know, your manager gives you, or partner in my case, manager gives you a review at the end of the year. You're great. You know, Sid, you're fantastic. You have a great future, but there's one thing you got to work on. And so I'm at the edge of my seat. What is it? He said, you have to stop asking so many questions. Mm-hmm. That was my last day in accounting. Uh, I could understand I've actually that. made a living by asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and sometimes when you ask good questions, it's kind of fun to find those answers and people care about those answers. It was really uh, amazing. But the yeah. point is, you know, back to, back to you, the, this was a, a, like a core skill set because you're running a business. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in the not-for-profit world, 
in the 80s, um, there weren't a lot of people who were running nonprofits who really had business skills. Um, There weren't as many arts administration courses. There weren't as many um, ways in which uh, arts organizations were thinking about themselves as businesses. In fact, Mm. you know, there were the the resident theater movement was just emerging. Um, You know, there were lots of companies forming. The Ford Foundation was really putting a lot of money into building our cultural infrastructure and arts organizations. Mm. Um, They put a lot of money into endowments for arts organizations, Mm. especially in the symphony world. And I can tell you that there are very few of those dollars left in those endowments because what didn't happen was the training of uh, leaders and the kind of um, business acumen that many of the organizations ultimately, as they grew to be these empires, really needed. So I was a little bit ahead of the curve because I did have this business background. Yeah. Also, boards of directors feel a little bit more confident when, yeah. when yeah. you're... You can speak the language. They yeah. get And your CEO has a CPA. Yeah, <laughs> you know? they're talking profit and loss, <laughs> and although a nonprofit, you might maybe surplus or deficit or right, whatever. Right, right. Uh, and you, you understand that better than most of them, probably. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So, so this maybe sounds o- like an obvious question, but what, what was the biggest difference going from um, um, Deloitte accounting, auditing, mm-hmm. uh, with oil and gas clients to becoming the director of a Tony Award-winning theater? Well, you know, um, what, do, what do they say about auditors, about how they come in and they clean up the dead bodies? You know, like you, you look at what happened and then you certify something that, that it was actually true. That's what an auditor does. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't very many dead bodies in in the arts, right? <laughs> there's there's certainly not living composers, which can be convenient from time to time, because uh, you don't have to deal with them. But there are lots of personalities. Yes, um, there are lots of personalities and lots of constituents, and lots of ways in which those have to be balanced to make a thing happen, anything happen. And this often, is true for any nonprofit, right? Absolutely, because you're absolutely. dependent on, on different people for for resource for survival. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and with respect to the arts, of course, and and theater especially, I think you have so many creative creative egos and energies that balancing those things to Mm -hmm. make sure that that, uh, a result actually – uh, happens on stage is is a challenging thing. Yeah, it's it's less so of a um, of a hierarchy. There are multiple stakeholders. Absolutely, that don't report to anyone other than themselves. And even if they did, they they won't accept that. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And and again, I think that goes back to something we were talking about earlier, where creativity and being able to co-create mm-hmm. is really a, a life skill that's more important than ever. And, and another mm-hmm. reason why I think the arts are such an important tool for our, for our students right now, because yeah. if you yeah. can actually make something happen as a community, as a collective, that's a very valuable thing. Tell me what co-create means in your experience. That means um, sitting together, sharing your ideas, mm-hmm. being able to collectively synthesize the best of those ideas mm-hmm. and see those manifest into a thing, whether that's, um, you know, a, a film or a theater production or, uh, you know, Got a it. piece of engineering. Got it. So what you describe is the way a high-performing team would operate, except Absolutely. that team would have a clear leader. And the term, first of all, you wouldn't say creation in business, even though that's what it is. Um, I'm always surprised at how so many business people are uncomfortable with the word creativity. They're good with innovation. Mm-hmm. They got that, but creativity. But the co-creation part, it's, it, it implies a more equal balance of power, Absolutely. which in most organizational business settings is not quite true. Well, and we struggle that with, with that in nonprofit world, too, because um, hierarchical uh, decision-making mm-hmm. – that um, arts and culture has been based on. I mean, uh, large organizations, our largest organizations are still very hierarchical. They're usually, um, the heads of those institutions are usually pretty homogeneous. They tend to be, you know, elder to middle-aged white men. Um, They are often the head of a a set of singular decision makers. and what we're finding is that to get more voices at the table, mm-hmm. being more open to a co-creative process is a richer and deeper way of making art come to be and have it connect with societies in a relevant and authentic way. So many of our cultural institutions are struggling to learn how to not be that singular voice 
that singular decision maker to figure out how to be more open to more voices and therefore more relevant to a broader cross-section of people. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way of describing it. The same problem exists in, in non-arts organizations. Sure. Um, uh, except they probably don't have quite as much experience in, co- in the co-creation side. The best of them certainly certainly do. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they, they unleash, I like to say, they unleash the creativity of the people around them so that everyone can be part of that right. experience. So how long were you working at the Alley Theater? So I was at the Alley just under a, a decade, and then I moved back to New York um, and worked as an independent producer and an artist agent, and then ultimately... Uh, moved into the music business, which was where my heart was because mm-hmm. my training was there. So um, I ran a classical music organization actually back in Houston and then in La Jolla and ultimately ended up um, at Yale where there was interest in um, what I like to call uh, the emphasis being the ampersand. So uh, what does that mean? Um it's about making sure that arts lives in context. And it's it I ran an organization called the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. And um, we in arts and culture often put something on stage or put something on our exhibition walls and say, oh, isn't that great? And invite people in and give them no context for understanding mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. we think it's great. And um, that's not a really good way of making art relevant to people or having them carry the stories that the art that art is trying to project. So the festival was really all about uh, trying to create links between um, Yale and the community in a way that was uh, authentic and uh, to share knowledge both from uh, a scholarly perspective, an artistic perspective, and just the public voice. And that's why um, I think of it as it being all about the ampersand, because when you have those three coming together, I think you have a much stronger way of learning from each other. The context point is really uh, interesting. Um, I'm sure there are people who say, well, this is my work of art, and you look at it, and you have some emotional reaction to it. Um, and that's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess somebody could say that about their book mm-hmm. or their musical composition or what have you. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about context, you, you're saying, well, there are various connections. And the, the, the primary one I think of, and I'm sure it's more than this, but the primary one is a time period, mm-hmm. a contextual time period you're, you're in. You know, if you, if you understand what Britain was like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess it was the 17th century, for Shakespeare, it sure helps you understand something about uh, about about that and sure. some of what was going on. Uh, and I've always been a big believer in that in that idea. Mm-hmm. Even I'll tell you an example of I haven't done this with my MBA students yet, but I've threatened to, and maybe I eventually will, which is to actually have them read real books, uh, not <laughs> necessarily business books, but yeah. great books, and talk about them and talk about what they mean and what they learn from them. Um, uh, because that provides you with a context of a uh, – uh, because the students today, don't, they don't know anything about history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm talking about business history in particular, but maybe it's true, you know, for history in general other than history majors. You don't really, you don't really know. And so the old expressions, history repeats itself and all this, well, one of the reasons it repeats itself because no one ever knew what it was in the first place. Yeah. So the contextual idea is really – and plus it's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And and one um, one assumes that artists are just like everyone else and they live in context, right? Yeah. So any work that they make is not divorced from their own ideas or perspectives. Right. So when you are in a position to, to um, appreciate art that comes from a different hmm. cultural perspective, maybe non-Western, maybe a different socioeconomic perspective um, – and you can understand the ideas that have uh, swirled around that artist mm-hmm. and the world in which they've delivered their work. Mm-hmm. You can understand better not just that art, but that person, and then ultimately yourself in the context of that. It's like a statement of, of rationale behind the entire podcast we're doing, actually. Uh, why do I ask people about their childhood? And what? Because uh, that's the context. And yeah. It's, it's so much more meaningful to know about, you know, how you grew up. And it turns out to be interesting 
in and of itself, and there's some lessons that come from that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I completely, I completely get that, and and I wish we would do, we would do more of that. But you know, the world goes to is going in such a specialized way. People become deeper and deeper experts in different different things, where the context, I don't, I don't, there's almost no room for the context, and and we miss something. Pretty, pretty dramatic. Yeah, and actually there's some new studies out. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to um, hear about some of the work that the National Academy of Sciences is doing, um, but uh, they've identified a real crisis in specialization hmm. because there are not enough um, intersections across specialties to truly have a global view of how to, ser- how to solve some of the greatest human needs that exist on our planet. And um, the the one, the the study that I love um, is called Branches from the Same Tree, which points to a time in which, mostly uh, around uh, the industrial age, when science and humanity separated. Hmm. And all of a sudden, you have the scientists creating solutions for humans, Mm -hmm. and you have humans talking about human need, but without the two really Mm -hmm. intersecting, you can't really mobilize Mm -hmm. or um, apply as well these solutions. So there's a a huge movement afoot now for an urgent reuniting of the humanities and sciences, and especially as we think about our our climate emergency. I was thinking about exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. This... this, um, atomization, really, of life and, and thinking exactly. um, uh, at the highest level, I think, expands and extends this. And it has to do with countries. You've talked about, you know, cultures and, um, and, and uh, humanities and science. It has to do with, has to do with that as well. Uh, almost every, every dimension you could think about that. Absolutely. Um, and th- it doesn't surprise me that, that, that more and more people are talking about this and trying to think about this because the biggest problems are not going to be solved. I think one of the things you said really at the beginning of our conversation is how we don't know about all these other cultures and this art and, and work going on, and, um, uh, and, and we should because uh, there's, there's, it's not just beneficial or interesting. There are connections and learning to be had. Yeah. yeah. So um, let's take one last quick break and uh, come back with Mary Lou. Welcome back to the SIDCast. I'm here with Mary Lou Aleski, and uh, in our last segment, uh, we bring you from Yale to Dartmouth, uh, bouncing around the uh, Ivy League. Why did you come to Dartmouth? Well, I would say uh, two reasons. Um, first, I, I really think that Dartmouth has an opportunity to do some things that are is really transformative in the arts. You know, the Hopkins Center in 1962 was the precursor to every major performing arts center that ever cropped up. This is true? This is absolutely the truth. Really? It is iconic. Um, there were no major performing arts centers of this scale that brought so many different artistic disciplines together under one roof. And every other major art center in the country, is it is the forebearer of. So that's a very mm. exciting proposition. And to ask oneself... Gee, what does a mid-20th century institution need to do to be as relevant in the 21st century as it was in the 20th century? What, how, do, how does it need to evolve? What does it need to be? What does it need to be thinking about? So that was a very exciting proposition. And, and why it, it was so promising was because of Dartmouth's size, actually, and uh, willingness and ability to uh, be nimble. So um, it feels to me like a very collaborative uh, environment. Um, maybe within Dartmouth on some days it doesn't feel that way to some people who have been here for a long time. But for for me, um, it, it feels like people who are, are curious. They're curious beyond their particular disciplines. They're curious about the world around them. They're curious about the impact their work has on the world around them. And that translates to our students. And our students are um, really interested in making a pathway that matters to others. So right. those are really important elements when you're thinking about what it means to be iconic again in the mid-20th, from the, from the mid-20th century into the 21st century right. through the arts. Mm. Yeah, because the Hopkins Center, I think also as, in terms of architecture, 
was uh, the early version of Lincoln Center. Absolutely. That's a very small version of that, but... Absolutely. It was, uh, Wallace Harrison was the architect, and in fact, um, Nelson Rockefeller, who of course was instrumental in building Lincoln Center, actually built the Hopkins Center. Um, he was the he was the primary philanthropist, and um, there is a wonderful, I'm going to paraphrase here, but there was a wonderful commentary from uh, John Sloan Dickey when people were saying, you know, put that modern looking thing and just drop it down in their beautiful green. And and he made a statement that um, that was really about how important it was for us to have a place that was broad enough and open enough that allowed our imaginations to swell and that the arts belonged in a place like this so that everything could filter in and out. And I think those principles continue to apply. Um, uh, You know, the the technology and the kinds of spaces we need in the 21st century is very different than what we were only using in the 20th. But it's it's really interesting that um, a place can be that open and welcoming. Yeah, that was that was a, a wise a wise leader to Absolutely. say a thing like that, right? And to see and to support that. Um, what's it like when you move to a new big? I mean, this is this is I think the biggest job you've had. It's bigger than the. I mean, it was a big job at Yale, but this is like running everything. You're the, essentially the CEO, if I may, <laughs> of uh, of the primary performing arts center in the college, and probably the most important, biggest one um, within a hundred miles in our. Uh, close to that in any in any direction. Um, but you you don't know a ton of people coming in and it's a yeah. different culture, it's a different place. How do you how do you get yourself set up? I mean and this and I'm asking this question in the context also of how many people move to different jobs, not yeah. necessarily quite this big right away, but many do. And how do you do it? Yeah. Well, I think the principles are the same no matter what the move is and I've I've benefited by um, more tenure stretches than uh, in institutions than my age seems to indicate. But <laughs> nonetheless, um, you know, I think the first thing you do is you look around and you start to imagine who's not at the table, mm-hmm. who should be in this community, and um, what what the institution is serving, who it's serving and who it might be serving if it were uh, reframed in a different way. And um, here at Dartmouth, I think the uh, Hopkins Center had a tremendous legacy for bringing the best artists uh, from across the globe mm-hmm. to the Upper Valley, uh, allowing the Upper Valley, both its the Dartmouth community and its residents, to feel as if it was a global destination. Um, you know, Yo-Yo Ma, who just was with us for commencement and got an honorary degree, didn't get it because uh, he had never been here before and he was great. He has a real relationship with Dartmouth because of the Hopkins Center and because of many relationships um, that he built while he was here. So that was one way to think about uh, including people, people who want to be part of this global network. But what, what, um, what seemed pretty clear to me when I arrived was that Um, Maybe those people who want to be part of making work of global significance, as we do in other disciplines, Mm -hmm. um, were not necessarily attracted to just witnessing greatness, but really more interested in in being a part of uh, making things together. So we started to think more about faculty and students and faculty and students' needs and um, interested in knowing what faculty was researching and how that might apply, um, what students were interested in and how they might want to uh, participate as performers, as writers, as thinkers. And all of a sudden, again, we started thinking about the context of the artistic work that we were making. So we learned quickly uh, that this community is has uh, many, many Uh, people who are interested in our indigenous populations. Um, We have a a history like many institutions, both good and bad, um, with respect to our our indigenous peoples, also as it relates to the environment generally. We have one of the greatest Arctic institutes in the country. What can we do to think about how we tell the stories of 
our, science, our scientific research in the Arctic that allows us to think differently about the environment. So we started thinking about ways in which we could invite artists who were curious about those things to make artistic work and to make that work um, by collaborating with our faculty and our students. So one of the things that we just did um, this past year was to commission a young composer by the name of Carla Kilstead. And she, we invited her here. She's very interested in environmental issues. She spent uh, about 18 months, five visits over the course of 18 months, visiting with our environmental studies faculty. And she ended up, long story short, she ended up writing uh, essentially a composition that was a re requiem for the lost trees that Dartmouth displaced by being here and invited the Abenaki community to be part of that and set a traditional Abenaki poem as the center of this work, which was composed actually for 40 children's voices so that we could think about what the future holds. Mm. So um, that's not to say that we don't want Yo-Yo Ma here. We <laughs> do. Um, and we want a lot of great artists to come and visit. But we want to think a little bit more about how we can um, create artistic work that is uniquely Dartmouth and uniquely about this place. And as you're doing that, you get to know more about the place. Yes. So yeah. that's a tool. More about the place, more about the people right. that are here. And when you create an, uh, an additional open door for for opportunities, uh, people, some people love that. And some people show up and say, yeah, I want to be part of this thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and in fact, I think we talked a little bit about um, what it means to be um, – a hierarchical institution and what it means to be a, a more uh, inclusive, um, co-creative kind of institution. Mm -hmm. And we've got some incredible artistic um, artists in residence, at both as the head of our, our ensembles, but also on our faculty. So interesting to listen to, the, to them and the work that they're doing and maybe think about how their work can be expanded by collaborating across disciplines as well and helping them facilitate that work. So you've been uh, here in this job for about, is it a year, a year and a half? Just two. Two years. Mm -hmm. so what, what's the biggest surprise been? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think the biggest surprise has been that we can't seem to keep a Chinese restaurant in business in Hanover, uh. New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I, I'm joking, but I'm not really. Uh, I do think that we are such a global community. Mm -hmm. Dartmouth is such a global community. And, um, you know, trying to make sure that uh, cultural awareness, broad-based cultural awareness mm -hmm. um, is uh, more uh, more accessible um, uh, is has been a surprise. The need to do that has been a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is. It is a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit funny, a little bit odd. I mean, it's a it's a place in northern New England, but the people come from all over. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we have this incredible global community that's kind of plopped in the middle of what's pretty homogeneous and how how hard it is to make sure that we're working uh, to, to advance awareness of the cultures of our community. Yeah. You know, you've you've written or, or spoken about intuition mm -hmm. in decision-making mm -hmm. and in leadership, and maybe you could say a little bit about that. And I'm particularly interested because, as you, know, you already referenced artificial intelligence, we're living in a world of data analytics everywhere, whether it's in, mm -hmm. in sports, in business, in all sorts of places. And, 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 uh, and the question is, w w how does that leave room for intuition? Is that what artists bring? They bring intuition. Um, the, the best artists are not just um, um, creating a formula mm -hmm. that produces something after uh, analyzing um, all kinds of data out there. They just, it, comes from, it comes from them. Uh, but yet it goes against what we now know to be a pretty powerful set of tools around around data analytics. So what, what's your take on all that? Well, I think um, intuition is informed by experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that, uh, you know, whether it's my own decision-making or artists in general, um, just like scientists, you try, you fail, you get up. You try, you fail, mm -hmm. uh, you get up, and your intuition becomes more uh, more astute, more aware um, as you get closer and closer to successes. 
And so you carry that as part of your tool bag. So mm -hmm. you can look at all the data, but ultimately uh, looking for a marriage of ideas with a form of expression is uh, a creative process. And that comes from not just intuition, but um, accumulated knowledge from essentially experimenting mm -hmm. in, mm. in the life of, our, of an artist and in the life of an arts lab. Right. And you make those decisions as you see them. And sometimes you're wrong, you know, you, and, and, and that's part of the learning. Sometimes you're wrong. We're always wrong. Right, uh, exactly. You know, I, as a CEO once told me, you know, if I'm right half the time, uh, I'm going to be an unbelievable success as long as I know when I'm right and when I'm wrong and I do something about it if it's not going the right way. Well, the other thing is I think, um, you know, and artists are usually uh, much better than than managers about this, but uh, being wrong is a state of being, is a hmm. constant state of being for artists being uh, uh, uh Basically, told no is a constant state of being, and having to creatively figure out how to overcome that mm. is also a constant state of being. So, um, you know, when you succeed, uh, it's it's almost as if a miracle happens <laughs> in some ways, you know. Yeah. I, but I think the most important thing is artists recognizing when they fail, right? Mm. That's a skill that we can all use. You try things, yeah. and they don't work. You have to know when to let go. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that gets back also to when you talk about how you realized uh, you're not going to become a famous um, um, artist um, or, or, or musician, but as much as you loved it, and you and you went in a little bit different, a little bit different direction. But it's all about it's about learning. You know, intuition is only valuable if you really have learned those lessons of good and bad and. And there's not always one lesson that comes out of it. They could be multi they could be nuanced lessons. And Absolutely. you could accelerate that process by learning. Experience Absolutely. is not necessarily the best teacher. Your experience could be telling you to do something a certain way and then the world is obviously is, keeps changing and you keep following that same that same game plan. Um, uh, so um, Well that's yeah. that's another really important point. Um, I do think that and and I do think institutions of higher education can easily fall into uh, the mode of, um, well, this is the way we do it, and we just do it again and again and yeah. again, and there's success. But always being aware of the world around you and not just what's happening now, but what is on the horizon mm -hmm. is something that artists teach us. Mm. Um, and uh, it's how art remains relevant. And artists know well that if they don't practice in that realm, both in the present as well as what's anticipated, mm. they won't maintain their relevance. Yeah, maybe that's also why there is, uh, there's often dealing with failure because you could be ahead of where people are or, you know, when you're thinking about what is the next part of your experience – it might make sense for you, might not make sense for other, exactly. other people, but I think we need it. Two, two last questions. Um, imagine that you can kind of go back in time um, and sit next to the 21-year-old Mary Lou, mm -hmm. um, and she's sitting there playing piano or doing whatever mm -hmm. she's doing, and you lean over and say, if there's one thing you really want to know mm -hmm. about life, about work, about whatever, this is it. What bit of advice would you give yourself? Mm. Your own twenty-one-year-old self. I actually think um, I would uh, advise myself to not be afraid. <laughs> you know, I think uh, especially uh, as a as a young woman who was uh, coming up in a in a career path that was ill-defined, and mm. um, and finding yourself in business in the eighties. You know, there was a, a lot of I, – I felt a lot of fear about having to uh, be someone that maybe wasn't who I was organically in order to get where I wanted to go. Mm. And so that fear that allowed me to not be my true self, I think, is the, is the wisdom that I would impart uh, yeah. to, to myself or any other 21-year-old, that um, when you manipulate your, your – who you are in order to fit a mold you think you want to be in. Mm -hmm. That's a really hard place to be. It's hard to maintain that. And it's it? very hard point, to maintain. You know, yeah, absolutely. The, the little signs start to pile up. And absolutely. And um, what I learned, uh, and, and I was lucky enough to learn it early enough in life, is that having a plan 
is kind of not so good. Um, if you have so much of a plan mm. that you're willing to turn yourself into knots in order to try to mm. meet that plan, mm -hmm. you miss a lot of opportunities that are coming across your path that you may not see. Yeah, I mean, that's great. That's great advice. When we allow what, the, what our fundamental goal is to dominate everything else, um, and it might be that that goal might not be the right one or it might change, and even if it is the right one, give up a lot along the way. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You, sh you shut yourself off to possibilities. Yeah. And in today's world, when things are changing so rapidly, mm -hmm. it's that much more important yeah. to and stay open. That is fantastic advice. Um, uh, last question, uh, if I could ask you about your partner. Yeah. Uh, where, so where did you guys meet? How did it happen? Um, he was an actor at the Alley Theater at my first, <laughs> my <laughs> and first you were, job. And you were in charge of the Alley? I was in charge time. of the Alley, and um, I thought he was the most obnoxious, arrogant person oh. I had ever met. <laughs> and um, he uh, persisted, and I left the Alley and went back to New York, and he persisted, and um, we ended up. Uh, later finding each other and um, getting married. So, uh, again, never, ever be afraid. <laughs> never think you know what you want. Yeah. Be open-minded. Be open-minded. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, you know, I've asked that question to a lot of the guests on the SIDCast, but this is the first time that it started, well, he was really obnoxious. I couldn't stand the guy. But we got married. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's almost 30 years. I'd call it a formula for success. <laughs> That's pretty good. Mary Lou Aleski, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. Thanks. Thanks so much, Sid. It's been fun.